0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770
1: CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Let's get back to the conversation about the uh, gun legislation tabled by the liberals today. As I said earlier, look, I, I think a strong case can be made that, you know, while imperfect, Canada's current legislation, sufficiently regulates handguns, semi-automatic rifles, uh, that there's not necessarily a glaring problem with our status quo. On the other hand, you could make an argument that handguns, semi-automatic firearms are too dangerous and should be illegal. The liberal government is going to try to wedge itself in, in a really weird space between those two arguments that... Runs the risk, I guess, of of uh, not pleasing either side, but certainly I think has some political motivation behind it that they're going to ban so-called assault-style weapons. And much of this was done already uh, through order and council. The legislation today allows for a buyback program, and of course they're going to allow municipalities, if they wish, to ban handguns. So they're kind of punting that decision. Not to the provinces, mind you, but to cities, to municipalities, which could lead to a very strange patchwork of of gun laws across the country, which has always been federal jurisdiction for the most part. Well, joining us to try to make sense of all of this is uh, someone who follows this debate very closely, Matt Gurney, columnist uh, for the National Post, nationalpost.com. Matt, welcome to the program.
0: Good to be here. I'm glad you didn't set me up for failure because if you had said I would make <laughs> sense of it, that would have been unfair. I can try to make sense yeah. of it, but a lot of this stuff doesn't actually make sense.
1: No, it's weird because you know I, I get the sense that look, if we want to look at it through a, a purely cynical political lens, this plays well in in big cities. This plays well where you are in in the uh, greater Toronto area. This it has political motivations, but. And why not just actually do something? Why not ban handguns? Why not ban all semi-automatic weapons? It's, it's hard to understand, isn't it?
0: You know what? What this really comes down to, and you'll, you'll have to forgive me for being so cynical on a Tuesday afternoon, but I guess there's no better time. What you need to understand is that the Liberals are going to sell this to the Canadian people as a public safety measure. That's the argument. Mm-hmm. They're doing this to keep Canadians safe. But they're not actually taking one gun from one Canadian. The handgun ban proposal delegates that to the municipalities. The liberals have said, oh, sure, we'll help enable whatever they want to do. But the liberals, the ones who actually have the authority, they're not doing anything. The so-called assault rifles, they're also not taking a single one from a single Canadian. They haven't even outlawed the sale of similar or comparable firearms, I, I popped onto the website of a gun store not too far from me today, to check their inventory, I could go out and buy a rifle very comparable to what the liberals proposed to ban, different in some ways, but it's like they've gone to the trouble of banning civics, but not accords. They've gone out of the way to ban Fords, but not GMs, and they've declared the problem of, of, road, of road rage solved. What you need to understand at the most fundamental level is that the liberals are going to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about public safety, but they're not actually forcing anyone to give up a single firearm.
1: Which, yeah, and and there you go. I think that in a nutshell speaks to just how how strange this is, and and maybe it is all political. I mean, I'm assuming that there are city councils and mayors out there who are eager to do this, but it's entirely possible that no one will take them up on this offer, (laughs) and in which case, really, as it pertains to handguns, nothing will have changed in this country
0: that is literally the case and here's what you need to understand most canadians do not understand the intricacies of the gun control system you're one of the rarer broadcasters and journalists in this country that actually does gun control is not a crime fighting tool it's a regulatory system it is a licensing system fighting the overwhelming majority of of gun crime in this country which by the way is no one disputes this all the police uh, forces agree, the strong majority of gun crime in this country is directly linked to gang activity, organized crime, and the drug trade. That is not a problem that you are going to solve by regulating hunters and sports shooters. It's they're, they're separate things. Most Canadians hear gun control and the thing of people shooting each other downtown. No, the gun control system in this country regulates sports clubs, hunting regulations, safety courses. Who can buy a firearm here? You can tweak, overhaul, re, re- imagine, reboot the gun control system in this country until the sun eats the earth. But it's never going to address the actual crime that the liberals say that they are uh, worrying about here. And I, I know that most Canadians don't understand this, but this is the best part. The liberals know you don't. They get to talk and talk and talk about public safety without actually doing anything. And it sounds really impressive until you know what they're actually proposing. And then you realize they're not proposing anything in particular except hassling people who all the available stats right from StatsCan, have shown definitively licensed gun owners in this country commit crime at a lower rate than the general population.
1: Yeah. You know, the weird thing about it, too, is that there's probably a stronger case to be made for banning handguns than there is for banning these so-called assault-style firearms. Uh, Gangs do use handguns. Handguns do get smuggled into the country. They they are responsible for a lot of uh, gun murders in in urban settings. But, you know, these so-called assault-style firearms, they really aren't. You know, I mean, there have been
0: some incidents, for sure. Um, you know, most of the uh, the firearms, most, not all, mm. most of the firearms the liberals proposed to ban would have been involved in at least one notorious incident in Canada. They were, they were politically clever about that. Their optics were smart. Right. But in the big picture sense, we have a very low level of gun crime within the regulated system in this country. Our gun crime in the in the main exist outside of the regulated system the toronto police i don't know if the calgary police uh, do anything like this but the toronto police fairly regularly will release photos of uh, guns or drugs that they've seized you know evidence right here's the here's the table and we've laid out all the guns and uh and drugs seized in the bust a lot of the time these are guns that are not even available for purchase in canada Canadian, even licensed, law-abiding Canadian gun owners and gun stores in this country can only import certain kinds of firearms. We don't have the whole buffet of options you have in the United States. Many of the guns that are turning up in at least the hands of Toronto gangs are explicitly illegal in this country. You can make a handgun a billion times illegal in toronto it's not going to stop the guy who is smuggling it in and the police know where they're coming from they know who these individuals are it's not going to stop the smuggling there is a cross-border trade for guns and drugs across the u.s canada border we've made some progress at disrupting it but here's the thing if you have a gun that's been smuggled into this country twenty years ago it still works just fine Guns aren't magic. They're mechanical devices. They're not even that complicated. If you know even basic maintenance, you can keep a gun working just fine for 100 years. These are just bits of metal. They're machines. And if you take proper care of them, they're going to last a long time.
1: You know, and there's the other side of it, and and I know you've written a lot about this this particular aspect. That for the most part, the, the gangs that are end, or the guns that are ending up on the streets are are smuggled into this country. There there are some that are stolen from law abiding gun owners uh, that do make their way into the black market. But this idea of, of banning guns in Toronto but not in Brampton. I mean, if you're going to try to make an argument that to some extent legal firearms can end up a part of the problem. This patchwork approach really does nothing to address that, does it?
0: No, and I think, as ever, if you, if you want to make the case that there is a, um, a particular problem with, with the specific issue of guns being purchased by people who do have valid licenses who then sell them into the black market, and by the way, we know that has happened. That has definitely happened. Mm-hmm. That's not made up. There are ways of addressing that problem easy ways of addressing that problem. For instance, the registry, which still exists for handguns, could easily flag unusual bulk purchases of firearms, or if the same individual is buying a new handgun every three months and that's being registered, there would be easy ways to monitor kind of unusual activity. Like, I went to the gas station once, and I, like, paid for my gas, and then I realized I wanted to buy a chocolate bar, so I bought a chocolate bar, and I tried to use the same debit card. And my bank immediately called me because they're like, whoa, two transactions from the same machine, from the same debit card in two minutes. You don't think if we, like, the Canadian government can't figure out like a comparable capacity for firearms? What you could also do for those who have fairly large collections of guns already is you could verify either by photo or by an arranged appointment that you still have possession of them. Like, there are so many easy ways to address what the liberals claim to be concerned about that is more efficient, less divisive, and frankly, equally effective. But they don't. This is not an issue of policy. This is an issue of politics. And I get it. It's probably good politics for the liberals. But what is interesting is that Even, like I said, the liberals are not banning a single gun here. The party of evidence-based policy has looked at this issue from every side. They've spent years mulling it over, and they still have not decided to take the step of actually seizing a single gun. What does that tell you about what they have been forced, however reluctantly, to conclude?
1: With regard to these so-called uh, assault-style weapons. So the, the plan is to, to offer a buyback, which you can argue there's some fairness in that, um, that will compensate people for, for turning over these, these firearms. But people don't have to, right? I mean, I think there's the problem that maybe we don't know how many uh, so-called assaults weapons even exist in this country. We don't even have a real definition for what that is. But if somebody owns a Ruger Mini-14, one of these guns with a notorious past, they don't actually have to hand it over, do they? No. No. No, they don't.
0: And that was buried in the original order in council. And what was weird about today's announcement, sorry, I don't mean to derail this, but what was weird in the announcement is that they didn't even actually announce anything substantive about that. They basically said, stay tuned for more.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, But to the extent they said anything, yeah, they've been very clear. And the prime minister was like, "Eh, we're going to make it impossible for anyone to use or transport or purchase or sell one of these firearms. Oh, great. So in the name of public safety, you've done everything except make it illegal for a Canadian citizen to own one. So you're, like, you're making it a hassle for them to ever take it to the gun range. You're making it impossible for them to take it hunting. You're saying you can't take it to the sports uh, shooting tournament. But you can keep it in your house. Yeah. And this, again, is in the name of public safety. All like If you are taking, the, the government estimates, they don't know for sure, but they estimate there's somewhere between, somewhere around 80,000 AR-15 type rifles in this country. Personally, I think it's a lot more than that. But let's go with their number. Let's say it's 80,000. The government of Canada is saying that there are 80,000 AR-15 rifles in this country that they are letting people keep in their homes. If this was a public safety issue, why would they do that?
1: A lot of questions. We'll see what, uh, what the months bring us in terms of answers here. Matt, much more at NationalPost.com. Appreciate it as always. Thanks for joining us here today.
0: Hey, take care, man.
1: You as well. Matt Gurney, uh, columnist for the National Post, as mentioned, NationalPost.com. So, yeah, we don't know what this is actually going to cost. And as Matt said, that's one of the weird things about today's announcement. And there were plenty of weird things about today's announcement. Well, we wait all this time to get the details, and we didn't actually get any details. How much is this going to cost? How's all this going to work? What are people going to get per firearm? We don't know. And that's the kicker. If you own an AR-15 or a Ruger Mini-14 or one of these you know, firearms that we've deemed to be uh, terrible, go ahead and keep it. There's some money on the table if you want, but otherwise, go ahead and keep it. And wh- what is the point exactly? Exactly. All right, welcome back. Welcome to this hour, Rob Regan Ridge with you afternoons on seven seventy CHQR. Much more still to get to uh, on the program this afternoon. We'll have more time for your calls coming up in this hour. Four zero three nine seven four eight two five five is the number. I'll let you know as well. Coming up at three thirty this afternoon, we are going to get an update from Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, an update on the uh, status of things here in Alberta related to uh, the COVID pandemic. Now, certainly, we've seen improvements in Alberta as of late. The Alberta government's prepared now to, well, I guess, as we saw last week, ease some restrictions, and hopefully we can continue this progress. But it feels like we're at a bit of a crossroads of sorts here uh, as we approach one year of this pandemic. We do have the prospect, the promise of uh, vaccination, although the exact timetable of that is is uncertain at this point. And we also face the wild card of these variants. And so there's certainly the possibility that we could continue to see ups and downs in the coming weeks and months. And does it have to be that way? Should we just settle for that? Or is there a better way? Uh, The Canadian Chamber of Commerce has brought together 19 CEOs and senior executives from leading companies to contribute their entrepreneurial skills and experience at delivering projects at scale. They have formed a new COVID-19 Recovery Leadership Council to develop practical solutions, and to reduce and ultimately eliminate COVID-19 in Canada and pave the way for a business-led economic recovery. So join us to talk a bit more about why there's a need for this council and what the objectives are, both short-term and longer-term. very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Perrin Beatty, who is President and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, much more chamber.ca. Mr. Beatty, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks very much, Rob. Glad to be with you.
1: Uh, And and so, yeah, we can certainly talk about some of the challenges uh, we're facing in in the uh, coming weeks and months here. But let's talk a bit about the the impetus for this council, how this came about in the first place.
2: Well, where we are at the present times, we are literally in a race against time. Um, It will be September, according to the federal government, by the time that we actually get people up to the level of uh, of, uh, uh, vaccination that we need to have in Canada. In the meantime, we're seeing outbreaks of new strains of the virus, which are even more dangerous than we saw before. That means that we have to do everything that we can to protect public health and to allow people to get back to their ordinary lives as rapidly as possible and do so safely. And so what we're looking at is everybody has has to do their part. Government, the private sector, individuals, and this is a way for business to make its contribution
1: but i mean part of this is, does this stem from a, a sense that that maybe we're not doing everything we can or or maybe we just we're not seeing enough urgency or outside of the box thinking i mean is is there a frustration here Yes,
2: there is, and we can see it for example um, the government has set out how many uh, uh doses of the vaccine we'll be receiving in the first three months of this year yeah the Americans are now vaccinating at the rate of about 2 million people a day. Uh, They will vaccinate in three days as many people as there will be doses of vaccine coming into Canada in the first three months of the year. Um, This means that they will be getting to the point of so-called herd immunity where they can reopen their economy, let people go on with their lives again much more rapidly than than we can. Same in Britain. Uh, They've already administered 15... Uh, million doses including most of the people who are at highest risk and that means that other countries will be able to reopen their economy faster. It also means that people will be able to get on with their lives without the restrictions faster and as a result then um, business wants to work with government in any way we can but we also want to take what actions we can take directly as opposed to simply waiting on government to do it for us.
1: Right. And, and this is about much more than vaccines. I, I mean, certainly we, we need a lot more urgency, I think, you know, when it comes to, to vaccines. And, you know, just I don't think it's been good enough in the eyes of most Canadians. But, you know, th- this council is is about more than vaccines, right? And, and looking at yeah. ways of, of using testing, for example.
2: Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the other very obvious example. We have millions of rapid tests sitting in warehouses across the country. Now, Alberta is doing a better job than most other provinces in terms of of rolling these out and and using them. And I've certainly talked to people in the energy sector who've been using them extensively since the start to try to protect their employees. Um, These kits will do us no good sitting in warehouses. We need to, to be getting out there, getting them used, have protocols in place for it, but also have an understanding about what does it mean if a business uh, tests its employees, uh, how will this affect the reaction of government as it, as it looks at restrictions on business activities? Let me give you an example. Restaurants across Canada, which have really been on the front lines where whenever there's an uptick in, in cases, uh, you find governments using them almost symbolically, shutting them down and saying, uh, we've got we've to close them down. As a result, we've got thousands of restaurants across the country that are in desperate shape and that may not may not survive, and when, instead of, you know, if you look at the Super Bowl parties from 10 days ago, instead of having people crowding without masks into somebody's basement, would it not have been better to have had uh, people able to come into a restaurant where there was proper physical distancing, proper PPEs and the like, and uh, where uh, it would be safer conditions? It just just makes sense to do it. Well, if if we can test all of the employees at a restaurant and give the assurance to customers that there's that added level of protection, um, what then is government's response on that? Uh, how do how will they be regulating? And does this make a difference? So we need to work with government, but business is prepared to do its part to to roll out rapid testing, to encourage employees to get vaccinated. In many cases, to help with the vaccination. In some cases, businesses that are even uh, willing to open up. Uh, community clinics to help the general population get vaccinated. Um, Pharmacies across Canada are are interested in the same way as they supply flu shots. Uh, They're interested in in helping out in in providing COVID-19 immunization shots as well. And in the United States today, if you go to Florida, you can walk into the pharmacy at the Winn-Dixie and get your shot. You can't in Canada today. So there's a key role for the private sector to play.
1: Yeah, there really is. And, and as you say, though, I mean, it, it it has to be at some level in conjunction with government. I, I don't think it's possible to, to to really do an end run uh, around public health restrictions. I know that that's not what you're talking about. But, you know, the idea of being flexible, we got some of these pilot projects underway in Alberta that you alluded to, where we're seeing a testing of employees in, in certain sectors, that we can expand that. But there's got to be a willingness on, on the government side to, to allow for that and embrace that, right? Exactly.
2: And, and if we all do our part, what we can do is we can provide better uh, protection for Canadians, and we can let them get their lives back sooner, and we can start to reopen our economy.
1: Which is what this is about, isn't it? I mean, it's it's an alternative to what we've been doing, and that nobody wants to be stuck for the next several months in this you know in and out of, of lockdown, this continuous cycle, right? So where do we begin what's what's job number one now for this this council how do we ensure that you know we, we can come up with better approaches well first
2: of all we've, we've reached out to, to governments to say look there's a body here with with expertise and with the capacity to to make things happen who are anxious to, to work with you and uh, we hope that there'll be a positive uh, reception there but then we'll get on with our work we'll be looking at what are the things that business can do to assist uh, that in some cases we don't have to wait on government and that we can move ahead now. How do we develop best practices, for example? And how can bigger companies which have developed good practices for uh, for protecting employees, how can they help smaller companies by sharing those best practices with them? That's just one example of what we can do.
1: We'll look forward to seeing and hearing more. Uh, people can read more. As mentioned, chamber.ca. Perrin Beatty, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All the best. time. Take care. Uh there's Perrin Beatty, President, CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, so chamber.ca. Uh, so he'll be one of the uh, special advisors to this committee. Uh, but it has got some really interesting uh, members on this committee. Like, for example, the President of Pfizer Canada, Cole Pino's on this. Uh, Ed Sims, President and CEO of WestJet. You've got Brad Sorensen. We just spoke with Brad just last week, as a matter of fact. CEO of Providence Therapeutics. Uh, You've got Canada Life, BlackBerry, uh, TNT Supermarkets, Shoppers Drug Marts, um, you know, so quite a a wide range of different companies involved here. And, and, you know, they come from different sectors. Some are very relevant, I think, to these questions. Others bring a certain amount of expertise or experience in dealing with uh, COVID-19. So I think the idea of bringing those voices to the table, putting different ideas on the table, embracing the potential, finally, of, of tools like rapid testing... You know, this is what we're going to have to do. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Much more still to come here today. We'll hear from Matt Gurney of the National Post coming up after 2.30. We'll talk about the Liberals' proposed gun buyback and how this is all going to work in practice. Uh, Coming up after 3 o'clock, the McDonnell-Laurier Institute will talk about this Canada-led initiative uh, to fight arbitrary detention. Hostage diplomacy. Now, this doesn't single out China or the two Michaels, but uh, clearly I think that's at the forefront of this. We'll get to that after 3 o'clock. We're going to hear from Dr. Dina Hinshaw coming up at 3.30, so we'll go live to that uh, coming up in about an hour and a half. So, like I say, much more to get to. But off the top in this hour, a conversation about what our next guest describes as the credibility crisis in corporate religion, that for so-called big religion, maybe the concern these days is more about politics, and self-preservation, and it is about a message uh, of faith and a message uh, of hope. Uh, Reverend Dr. Tim Calloway pastor of they Break Community Church and also uh, author of uh, three books, his latest, God is Loser Friendly, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Me. He joins us all on the line here this afternoon to talk more about all of this. Uh, Tim, great to have you back with us. You're welcome to the program.
3: Thanks, Rob. Good afternoon, and happy Shrew Tuesday.
1: Well, there you go. Uh, so we've got some really interesting and important issues to talk about, and, and you sent me some stories recently that kind of highlights this. Um, for example, you have uh, Ravi Zacharias, Passed away recently, but he was the, the head of a prominent Christian uh, organization, was engaged in apparently all kinds of, of sexual misconduct. We've got uh, a new lawsuit that's been filed against the Catholic Archdiocese of Vancouver, again, alleging that uh, systemic, uh, systemic abuse has been covered up for decades and a lot of other stories like this. What does this all represent to you?
3: Let me just give your readers a little bit of background, Rob. So when I was in seminary in the early 1980s, I'm a dinosaur, (laughs) I did some research into sexual abuse in religious circles. Now, it's important that listeners remember that this was the early 1980s, before Internet, before much, if any, information had come out about regular abuse in the Roman Catholic circles. This topic wasn't even on the public radar, and it's hard for us to remember that there was such a time, because it seems to be everywhere these days. And so, that to say that I've had uh, my nose in this topic and been interested in it for the better part of 40 years. I read recently, I think it was just over the weekend, that the Roman Catholic Church has spent three point six billion dollars, three point six B with a billion dollars, in defending lawsuits and uh, legal activity with respect to sexual abuse. That's an awful lot of money, Rob. Yeah. And uh, lest people think that I'm only interested in bashing Catholics, not at all. As you mentioned, uh, just this past week, the law firm that actually represents Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries reported that there is plenty of evidence regarding him being a sexual predator for a long, long time. Rob, every time I turn around, I'm running into this, and with Lent starting tomorrow, I had hoped that maybe the Pope or whoever considers themselves to be the Protestant Pope might issue some kind of a declaration that the church Christian should use Lent twenty twenty one as a season of profound repentance for much of what is going on and for much of what we are known for. Sad to say I haven't heard of any such declaration. What troubles me as a local pastor is this, that when I meet new people and I tell them that I'm a pastor, I see that look that goes across their face. Very often they raise questions and say to me in so many words, I don't think the church has a lot of credibility in this day and age because of some of the very situations that I've described to you. And that troubles me because there are thousands of committed Christians and committed pastors across this continent who work hard every day to try and bring some credibility to the message we proclaim. And all it takes is for some of these big players who have an international audience a major corporation, a budget of millions of dollars who surround themselves with family members on their board and friends on their board, and they basically conduct themselves with impunity, thinking that they are answerable to nobody. And I'm saying not so fast, okay? If you're going to come into our communities and ask for our church's cooperation and ask for our people's money, then we're going to call you to account and it's high time that we endeavor to do that. Now, sad to say, very often when you try to do that, what happens is you get the predictable dismissive letter from the organization, a circling of the wagons, just go away. That's not good enough, Rob, and there are many of us who are upset about this and say this must stop.
1: Right, and I would imagine it's, it's a dilemma of sorts uh, for, for you and others, because as you say, I mean, as, as a Christian, as a pastor, you, you've got a vested interest in the, the perception around the faith, the perception around the religion, um, but ignoring the problem isn't the way to address it at the same time. So what, what kind of a dilemma does it create for, for voices within Christianity who are trying to fix this problem and, and not sweep it under the rug?
3: The thing that I don't understand, Rob, is why the laity seems to get it. As I mentioned, I have conversations with all kinds of average Joes, and this topic comes up. And to them, it's a matter of credibility. And yet the hierarchy in the Church, both Protestant and Catholic worlds, refuse to address it in a meaningful way. Every now and then there's some window dressing. Every now and then there's some righteous rhetoric, but nothing changes. And you're right. It poses major problems for those of us who are doing our best to bring some credibility to the Christian gospel.
1: You, you use the term corporate religion or corporate Christianity, and and you know for a lot of these institutions, these these are big businesses. How does money and and this amount of money, how does it how does it twist all of this? How does it torque not just this conversation, but you know the the very mission of these institutions?
3: One of the things that Jesus said that I think is relevant to this question is you cannot serve God and money you cannot and I've written I've told classes I've told audiences I think we've been trying to prove him wrong ever since now obviously capital is important capital is essential in order to carry out anything in this day and age but as I indicated earlier Rob, what we're seeing now is corporate Christianity on a scale that is unbelievable. You have corporations such as Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries, corporations like the Billy Graham Association and Samaritan's Purse, corporations like Hillsong, all of which have been in the news recently, and they have a multi-million dollar budget on a regular basis and all of the perks that go along with the corporate world. If you try to raise any concerns with them, chances are you'll probably hear from a lawyer. Chances are you will get a predictable corporate response. And the average Joe out there, the average pastor like me, we look at this and we say, we can't compete against that. And yet, as I mentioned a few moments ago, These people don't think anything about coming around and asking for our cooperation in the name of the gospel. And then when we try to raise some objections, they just tell us to go away. And I've heard from enough Christian leaders recently, from enough laity recently, who have pled with me, please speak up and say enough is enough we are tired of being associated with this type of stuff which we perceive as anything but supportive of the basic values of jesus
1: so what's what's the answer to all of this then
3: good question rob
1: yeah
3: (laughs) i think as i indicated earlier it has to begin with a serious look in the mirror An openness that is not present at this particular time some of these people who run these huge corporations and surround themselves with family members and friends and are essentially inaccessible they run these organizations where they have good people working for them But hear this type of thing, and they don't know what to do other than to respond in accordance with protecting their jobs. All of us can understand that. But when it's gotten to the point that it has gotten to, Rob, I'm saying, what is it going to take for some of these people? When the information about Ravi Zacharias came out shortly after he passed away, coming up a year ago in May, there was an immediate response and a predictable response from the uh, corporate Christian world, what you get is you get ducking, dodging, defending, saying there's absolutely no way that these malicious rumors could be true. And those of us who have been in this world for a long time, such as I have been, we say, I'm sorry, but the data just doesn't support your response. You can duck, you can dodge, you can deflect, you can defend until the cows come home. In 98% of uh, instances, ultimately, the disclosure reveals that the stories are accurate. What are you going to do? And this is one of the things that the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries is faced with right now, because people more knowledgeable about the situation than I am have said, this is systemic cover-up. This is systemic party to abuse, and it's evil, it's criminal, and it certainly is anything but Christian. So who is going to look in the mirror? Who's going to be the first big shot in modern religion to look in the mirror and say, you know what, it is time for us to repent. It is time for us to come clear, come clean. I I don't know who that's going to be, but I pray to God that it's somebody, and I hope it's soon.
1: I mean, the fact that all of this is coming to to light, um, you know, I mean, there's no hiding it anymore, right? And, and, you know, that transparency and putting all of this out in the open, that's a big step, isn't it?
3: Well, Rob, you know, in the age of social media, can anything be hidden for long anymore? I don't think so uh... some of us are so old we can remember the day that you had to wait for a headline until the next morning or the next evening on the newspaper right well that day is long gone something happens and within minutes it is on social media and it is making the rounds and facts very easily get twisted and commentary becomes fact and all of the assorted complications that go along with that given that reality which you don't control which i don't control it just is what it is trying to hide this stuff is virtually impossible and even stuff that you know comes out say within the last year with regard to ravi zacharias some of us have been aware of the allegations for six or seven years and we've been amazed at how long it's gone before it's finally come out in the open but that day is coming to an end, and I say rightly so, and I say thank God for that, because people deserve to know. When big religion lacks credibility, there are organizations in every town, village, city across this continent that pay a price for that. And as I mentioned earlier, there are good people, committed pastors, wonderful laypeople, who are working hard to represent Jesus, and then we have to deal with this, which everyone is aware of. It's just an unbelievable expectation that is getting harder and harder to deal with.
1: And the consequences, and and you alluded to it at the outset, the credibility factor, and there's a lot of factors at play when it comes to declining uh, church attendance or just how people feel about religion in general. But but this has got to be a big factor, isn't it?
3: You know, one of the, and there, and there are many things that are just unbelievable about this whole dynamic, but here, here's one that I just, I, I laugh about, I chuckle about. The person who has held Ravi Zacharias when he was still alive, and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries' feet to the fire, is an atheist lawyer in San Francisco, And, you know, when he first started making these allegations and accusations several years ago, and he eventually wrote a book, literally wrote the book on this stuff, and he was met with the usual dismissals added to the fact that he's an atheist, and so a lot of people just said, you're a tool of Satan. You're being used by Satan to destroy a good man. Well, here we are, four or five years later, and he's looking pretty good in terms of what he was on That's how bizarre it's gotten. I sent a note to him the other day saying, I'm going to nominate you as a defender of the faith. <laughs> you know, that, that is how absolutely surreal it's become, Rob. You have uh, wise people, intelligent people, like an atheist lawyer saying, can somebody answer these questions? here's the documentation, here's the validation, what do you have to say about this? And essentially all he got back was, go away, Satan. And I say, "Uh uh-uh. Jesus told his followers that we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Who's going to step up to the plate and deal openly and honestly with these factual allegations? And so now here we are faced with a situation where chaos is reigning because so many people are saying, I was a big Rabbi Zacharias fan, what am I to do with this information? How do I profile that? Now, as you know, Rob, and you mentioned earlier, my latest book, God is Loser Friendly, I review the first book of the Bible, Genesis, looking at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a lot of the well-known characters of that book. And... What I find amazing is that this type of stuff, sexual sin among the spiritually elite, has been on the record for a long, long time. So can somebody please explain to me why, then, Christians' immediate reaction is to deny, doubt, deflect, dodge? I look at the evangelical world, which prides itself on believing that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God, and I say, why don't you read it more often? This stuff has been around for a long, long time. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to this. So what's with this doubting it? What's with this accusing people of being Satan in the flesh when they bring out some allegations and say, there's merit to these allegations? Check it out. Look into it. It just, it absolutely befuddles me when I hear Christian people immediately coming to the defense when in the Bible, which they claim to believe and quote all the time, tells them otherwise. I just don't get it.
1: Well, we'll leave it uh, on that note. Uh, I'm sure we'll have uh, more time for this conversation down the road. And uh, in the meantime, Reverend Calloway, I always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us here.
3: Thanks for the opportunity, Rob. Have a good
1: day. All right, you as well. Take care. Uh, Reverend Dr. Tim Calloway, pastor at uh, Daybreak Community Church, uh, author as well, and uh, some thoughts from him on some of the big challenges uh, facing the faith right now. I do want to start, as mentioned, with this really interesting story that uh, emerged over the weekend. I think it was the Toronto Sun that first reported this. Uh, Word of a potential uh, availability of large quantity of AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccines. Now, Canada has not yet approved the AstraZeneca vaccine, although we understand that approval is very close, if not imminent. So in the meantime, as Canada has struggled to acquire sufficient quantities of vaccines, what if we all of a sudden had access to literally millions of them? So that's where the story gets really interesting. Uh, The CEO of a Calgary-based health company, As the Toronto Sun reports, says he has a line through one of his vendors for more than 12 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine and has been trying for weeks to get somebody in government to take notice. So join us to talk a bit more about uh, these vaccines, what the reaction has been from from Ottawa, from the provinces. Very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, Mike Kuzmikes, who is CEO of Ecore Blood Services uh, based here in Alberta. Uh, Mike, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
4: Hey, thanks for having me on.
1: Okay, so this is really interesting. Tell us a bit more, if you can, the the backstory of of where these vaccines are and and how you became aware of their existence.
4: Yeah, so you know, private sector uh, acquisitions of, of vaccines right now aren't aren't a new story. We don't really hear about them in Canada, but you know, globally, private sector acquisitions are. Are not that uncommon, and so just by virtue of sort of my chair and what our our company does, uh, an opportunity landed on my desk about almost going on four weeks now um, for the purchase of of uh, astrazeneca vaccines that are sitting in cold storage, ready for deployment. Right. So when you when you hear that and you see all the news, you think there's you know there's no way, there's absolutely no way. Uh, But we have spent uh, a fair amount of time with multiple. Different people and parties uh, throughout the country validating it, going through all of the the data room, the due diligence, the you know the backstories, the authentication letters, everything. Uh, and there is there is a zero percent doubt at this point in anyone's mind of the legitimacy of this of this offering. Right, these vaccines are outside of the COVAX program. Uh, they're outside of any uh, quantities that have been promised to to any governments. They are they are a, a private sector uh, you know allocation of, of vaccines. So. We, you know, we've approached a few provinces. Um, going back, some of them have known about this for about three weeks, and some of them are more recently, just about a week and a bit. Uh, but we have, we have said here, this is, this is on the table. Uh, you know, the, the, the price is about twice of what you're going to see on the market uh, right now, which you know, it is what it is. The fact that it can be delivered anywhere in the world within seven days of, of proof of payment, you know, in some means justifies that price. Um, you know, take a look at it take a look at it and the response that we got back over and over from from different people and different firms hitting them at different angles uh for the most part was was either complete silence or some sense of well we don't believe it's real and so i understand uh in this environment certainly the the you know the the feeling that there's no way this is real because as we saw with the mask situation um, you know the the big. I think it was Honeywell, right? The big massive right. deal that was missed yes. with Honeywell, it got lost in the procurement cycle. I'm sure I'm not the only person or the only company to throw their hand up and say, "Hey, I've got vaccines to sell you." But when when the same offer is coming at you from multiple different sources over a period of three weeks, um, it probably warrants you taking a look at it and a serious look at it. And I know that they have said, you know, when I say they, I mean the governments. I know that they have they said they've done their due diligence and. They've, they've looked into it, and they, they have their doubts. But I can tell you for a fact that no one has called anyone in the supply chain. No one has signed an NDA to get access to the 1,800 pages of due diligence. No one's really taken a look at it. So my head is getting tired from banging it against the wall on this. But all I'm asking is for somebody at a government level to have a conversation and see the due diligence and then make your decision.
1: So when you say you've reached out to uh, some provinces, does that include the uh, Alberta government? It does. And like the others, no response?
4: The, the, it's hard to say. The response is there. And I understand there's a, there's a varying number of reasons why, why you wouldn't jump on this. One, of course, is, as I mentioned, the doubt that, you know, this potentially isn't real. We don't want to get caught in a fraudulent situation. The other, the other thing that you mentioned off the top was Health Canada approval, right? This isn't actually Health Canada approved yet. So right. even if you bought them right now, um, there's no guarantee that you'd be able to get them over the border. So, Health Canada approval has been imminent for going on almost three weeks now. I think everyone's on the same page that it is going to come. And so, the the request that we've made is is take a look at it, take a look at it. If you agree with us that it's legitimate, put in your LOI, you know, put in your holding deposit, lock up a few million doses, uh, and then when the Health Canada approval comes through, you've got product on a on a flight, and it's here, and you can start getting it into people.
1: So is this company looking to to sell? all 12 million to, to a single buyer or what kind of flexibility might there be?
4: No, and, and that's where this comes in. So the minimum the minimum order is, is 100,000 doses, right? And so um, they're, they're not looking to sell it all to one buyer, but the minimum dose is, is 100,000 uh, doses. And the 12 million that is, is what is left of the original 45 million pool, right? The other 30, 33 have been sold. So there's 12 million left. I saw this opportunity. I put down you know, our own holding deposit through our company to, to buy some time to, to keep this locked up, thinking that people would appreciate the buying of the time to go and do their own due diligence and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, we're going to jump in on this. But at this point, the clock is is, is really running out. Um, you know, it might even be today that, that this gets pulled. Um, and so what I've, what I've decided to do uh, is is basically line up my own financing. So I'm quite certain um, that I'll be able to close financing today uh, on a few million dollars to be able to purchase these myself uh, and, and have these 100,000 doses purchased, uh, which will then allow me to fly to the, you know, to the, uh, the warehouse facility, uh, take video, take pictures, ver- verify stock and send all of this back uh, to the governments and say, what, you know, what's the, what's the excuse now?
1: hmm. Well, and, and here's the thing, right, because you're not necessarily looking to to be in the middle of this deal or to to take a piece of this deal. I mean, at the same time, though, you're certainly, you know, putting your neck on the line a little bit here, your company's reputation, certainly. So so talk about that sign-up.
4: Yeah, I mean, I am just like everyone else here. I'm absolutely tired of the lockdown. I'm tired of, of destroyed lives, people losing their jobs, businesses being closed, haven't seen my my parents in in almost a year, right? They haven't seen my kids. Like, I'm just getting tired of it. So if I'm right, right, I put my company's name on the line. I put my name on the line by being so vocal about this. If I'm right, people will know that i was right and that ICOR helps facilitate some level of relief for this. And that will help me in my own business in my own various ways. All I'm trying to do is get the government directly talking to the supplier to authenticate the deal. And if they want to go ahead, go ahead with their own deal. That's it. So I, I just, uh, I'm sure you can tell the frustration in my voice. I've been living this up and down for, for three, four weeks, and those those that are in my network, in my circle, that have been working in the trenches with me are, are at wit's end as well. And so I'm hoping out of, out of all of this, my intention with going public on this was just to force a conversation, right? Have somebody pick up the phone, sign an NDA, go through the data room and decide for yourself at that point. But don't tell me that it's not real before you've even given it an actual look.
1: All right, so if, if governments miss this opportunity... What's likely to become of all of these vaccines?
4: Well, they'll continue to be sold uh, globally to Mm -hmm. other less skeptical buyers. And then I think the next, uh, I think the cavalry for Canada is, what, September? I think when our, our, you know, large doses start to roll in. So we're looking forward to another seven, eight months of lockdown. um, When, you know, I I hope the worst thing that's going to happen is that three weeks goes by and somebody figures it out and says, oh, he was right and it's a missed opportunity. That, that's going to be the, the worst possible outcome here. So I'm hoping we can save that off by trying to get some traction on this in the next 48 hours to, to not lose this opportunity.
1: And if you're able then, uh, through your company, to acquire some of these vaccines, could you be in a position at some point uh, where where you'd be able to offer these or other private companies would be able to offer these?
4: As as far as I understand, the World Health Organization has issued a blanket emergency use authorization for the AstraZeneca vaccine, which means it is available for purchase by a public or private organization in any country around the world, not subject to any local health authority. So with these 100,000 that I purchase, yes. With those, I'd be looking to to resell those on the private sector or, or roll them into a government deal um, if, if they're gonna go ahead with something. Cause I don't, you know, what am I gonna do with 100,000 doses? Like right. I'm, I'm, I'm really going about this to prove this out, to prove this out, remove all doubt from everyone's mind. And see where it
1: goes. All right. Well, we'll keep a close eye on this as well. Mike, thanks so much for taking some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this.
4: Not a problem at all.
1: All right. There you go. Take care. Uh, Mike Kuzmikas is uh, CEO of i Blood Services, i based here in Calgary. Um, you know, certainly you may be familiar with, with them in the context of the last year or so. They, they do some, some private antibody and PCR testing, among other things. So through their various health sup- suppliers, now they've got a line on these vaccines. Uh, they're sitting in uh, cold storage in Dubai, owned by Dublin-based medical supply firm Epic Data, Epiq Data. So again, and and you know he understands the skepticism. Is, is this legit? Does this company really have 12 million doses of this vaccine sitting there? So there's an opportunity to do that due diligence. If we don't want to buy these vaccines from this particular company, fair enough. Again, we haven't approved the AstraZeneca vaccine. I don't know exactly what the timetable is, if and when it's approved, how many we'd be expecting when they would get here. I mean, this would be one way to, to not have to worry about that potentially. Does it seem at least worth looking into? 12 million. Again, I mean, it's a two-shot vaccine. But still, I mean, that, that's millions of Canadians. And that's certainly in the position we're in at the moment, where very few Canadians have been vaccinated. Something worth looking into, at the very least, I would think. All right, I want to get to this. Um, you know, the question of uh, international arbitrary detention, hostage diplomacy, as we've seen with the two Michaels, it, it's a problem. Uh, Canada's uh, at the forefront uh, of a, a new effort, a coalition of 57 other countries uh, offering support for this international declaration, which denounces this whole idea of state-sponsored arbitrary detention. So it's an acknowledgement of the problem, but does it really get to the core of the matter? Uh, someone who's been uh, following all of this very closely and written about uh, the urgent need to address this is uh, Sarah Teach, is an international human rights lawyer, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, also a legal advisor to the Canadian Coalition Against Terror. Sarah, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
5: Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: All right, so how significant, in your view, is is this coalition, first of all?
5: So I think it is significant. I think it's very a uh, promising step, but I think I hope it will be the first step of of many, uh, because really more needs to be done. A declaration on this isn't isn't enough unless it's followed by meaningful, concrete action. You
1: know, and certainly when when we think of of this, we, we think of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver, which uh, continue to you know languish in, in detention in China, very much arbitrarily detained uh, for political reasons, it would seem, but. The problem goes much deeper doesn 't it so how how big a problem is this globally? Uh, so
5: what we see is hostage diplomacy, as we 've been popularly uh, calling it, is really becoming a new normal, especially uh, when we 're dealing with authoritarian regimes so China and the two Michaels is you know a great example of this, but we also see this uh, being used by by Russia, by uh, turkey by iran this is This is a problem that Stands beyond just China and beyond just the two Michaels, although that's it's of course top of mind for many of us here.
1: Well, yeah, and, and for good reason, obviously. But why are we seeing more of it? Is is it because it works, or is it more complex than that?
5: <laughs> it probably is because it works. That's uh, exactly what yeah. I was going to say. I mean we have uh, we have existing sanctions mechanisms, the Magnitsky Act in particular. But what we've been seeing is Canada and other. You know, like-minded, rights-respecting states have been reticent to use those uh, general sanctions regimes in response to cases of arbitrary detention. So, you know, actually just a month ago, uh, the Canadian Coalition Against Terror and the McDonald laurier Institute published a paper I wrote on this where we actually proposed novel legislation that contains a specific, as opposed to general, sanctions regimen. And that's something I, I hope will come out of this coalition is that you know, I really I hope it becomes a framework for concerted action that includes enforcement mechanisms such as sanctioning those responsible for or complicit and hostage diplomacy.
1: Right. And so that gets back to the point about this, this coalition that, you know, it's, it's encouraging that we're calling attention to this. We're speaking out about this. But unless we're prepared to follow through, ultimately, it, it could end up being meaningless, couldn't it? Uh, well, I don't
5: know about meaningless. There's value. There's intrinsic value in, in saying things. But, uh, certainly, enforcement will become very
1: important, so yeah, much less meaningful, perhaps is a better way to put it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm
5: sorry, I'm parsing for the typical lawyer well, but it, yeah,
1: <laughs> it, it matters, yeah, absolutely it does, and and not to take away from this because it you know, as we alluded to it's it's a step in the right direction, and and so it's good to see so uh, in, in terms then of of the follow through. Um, you know, does, does Canada need to lead by example here? Do you feel like we're almost waiting for others to lead by example? Where, where do we need to? Where are we likely to see the, those meaningful next steps?
5: So I hope we do lead by example. I mean, for one thing, we've, you know, led this coalition, so that's very positive. And as far as I know, there hasn't been a similar proposal as, you know, as the one we put out last month for other countries. So, you know, we've basically provided an act for this purpose. That would give the situation, uh, give the government um, enforcement mechanisms to respond to the situation. So in theory, it would be you know, quite easy for Ottawa now to, to delab- deliberate on uh, including a bill like this into Parliament. And hopefully the coalition then becomes a framework to encourage other countries to do the same.
1: So it's interesting. So you've talked about, you know, sort of three main parts of, of an approach on this. So sanctions that you've alluded to, but there's also the, you know, the aspects of support for families, which is important, and multilateral cooperation, which, you know, I think this this coalition is moving in that direction. So why, why is it important to include all three?
5: All right. So first of all, I'm thrilled you actually read my paper. That's, that's wonderful. Um, you're probably, yeah, one of maybe five so. Uh, yes there's three parts to the proposed bill. Uh, the first one would be sanctions and that would be sanctioning foreign nationals as well as foreign states who are responsible for complicit in hostage taking and then the second part addresses a really important gap and that's the families issue because what we've seen is that the government of Canada has a really has a really hit or miss record in dealing with the families of hostages that are detained abroad it it ends up being sort of at the discretion of the particular RCMP officer that any given family is dealing with and whether that officer chooses to go above and beyond with the family or doesn't. And so what we've seen is a lot of families expressing uh, real frustration at how they've been treated and communicated with. There was a, uh, a multi, multi-part expose on this issue by the Toronto Star back in 2016, and nothing's really uh, has seems to have changed so another part that a uh, domestic legislation uh, should be doing is obligating the canadian government to communicate regularly with the families of hostages uh provide support provide mental health support you know uh, these family members can't often just walk into a regular therapist office and get the uh, specialized support that they need this is um this is not something that just anyone can help them with mm-hmm. and then the third part is multilateral co- uh, collaboration and uh, foreign support by foreign nationals in particular, uh, because we also have to recognize that, you know, well, it's great that like-minded countries are now coming together to say, you know, this is wrong. Often uh, dealing with the release and repatriation of a hostage abroad relies on critical lo- local support as well.
1: You know, getting back to the point you made earlier about you know the, this works and that's why it's used. And you know the the situation with the two Michaels is maybe a good example of that because it the, the basic principle here is is straightforward enough and and we should want to send a message that would discourage this sort of response. But it almost seems then when we're in the throes of the situation and we've got this instance of two Canadians who who are detained under these these kinds of this kind of a situation that we seem, you know, we're, we're fearful, we're, we're almost frozen with inaction because we don't want harm to befall them. So how do we address that side of it in, in having a meaningful response, but that's, that fear that we might make their situation worse?
5: Right. Well, I mean, yes, that's a real fear. And I don't see a, a way for that to really be assuaged. You know, this goes back to also the fact that this really is a broader problem. And if we right. have a clear legislative policy response um, that government officials can follow, and then not be frozen in action. It becomes really clear this is what we do uh, when Canadians are, are seized abroad. Then, uh, you know, the point is really deterrence, also to you know, hopefully make it so that in the future Canadians aren't seized.
1: And then to to not be alone, right, which gets back to the point you made about the multilateral cooperation, that um, it's not just Canada speaking out about this, or it's not just the U.S., or it's not just, you know, Great Britain, that, you know, that we're speaking as one. And, you know, you you don't want to be alone in a situation like this. And I, I think it's good to know that Canada's not alone on this, and hopefully we'll make sure that other countries, if they're in a similar position, they're not alone either.
5: Yeah, 100%. This is a global problem, and it needs
1: a global solution.
5: We need to collaborate with
1: our allies. All right. Well, some progress in the right direction appears. I'll let people know. Uh, they can read more from you. Your paper, it's up at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate the insight on this. Thanks so much. All right. All the best. Uh, that is Sarah Teach, who's a uh, senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, uh, also a legal advisor to the Canadian Coalition Against uh, Terror, And uh, an international human rights lawyer herself. So she's written a lot about this issue and urging this kind of an approach. And so it's good to see this. This is starting to come together and hopefully it it can crystallize into something even more meaningful. Um, So Canada's involved. That's great. But as she says, we need that follow-up too, right? That if we're going to say this, we got to mean this. We've got tools at our disposal that we can use, starting with and especially sanctions. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.